one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. For the first 15 years of her acting career, my guest on today's show was unfortunately stuck in some version of sitcom hell. Then came the role that changed her life forever. I drop everything for you. Every single time you confess to a felony on tape, I'm there. You have a bar hearing, I represent you. Over and over again, if you need me, I'm there. But somehow in your mind, the only measure of my feelings for you is, is some office? Yeah, I'm good enough to live with, to sleep with, but God forbid you should have an office with me. What are you doing? I just told you, you get to... a little bored with your life so you come down and roll around in the dirt. Yes. Have some fun with slipping, Jimmy. Oh, is it the... fun? Fun Back like up. lying to the ADA to get your friend out of the shitter? Or fun like standing there with a smile plastered on my face while you play infantile mind games on my law partner? Oh, what a mistake it was to take me up to your office in the sky. You'll never do that again. Yeah, maybe I won't. And maybe next time you call, I won't come. There you go. Kick him in when he's down. Jimmy, you are always down. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was the incredible Ray Seahorn as Kim Wexler going at it with Bob Odenkirk's Jimmy McGill on Better Call Saul. Now, I know what you're thinking. This insanely talented dramatic actress is not exactly a comedian, and you're totally right. But outside of her most celebrated performance, Ray's career has been almost entirely dominated by comedy, including stints on sitcoms like NBC's Whitney and more recently HBO's Veep. This month, she is returning to her comedy roots as the matriarch of a very dysfunctional cartoon family on The Harper House which was created by former South Park writer Brad Neely and just started streaming on Paramount+. Plus. In this bonus episode of the podcast, Ray talks about getting the chance to show off her funny side again after years of playing the mostly serious Kim Wexler. And yes, we do get into the very intense conclusion of the most recent Better Call Saul season and look ahead to what's coming up in the highly anticipated final season. All right. Here's me with Ray Seahorn. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, are you uh, are you in Albuquerque right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am. We, I was filming last night. <laughs> so yeah, we. I don't know if you remember this. We met down on the set in Albuquerque when you were filming season four. I uh, I came down to write a big uh, yes. article for the Daily Beast yes. about uh, about that's the so funny behind the scenes of uh, season four, which feels like a million years ago now. Right? It's hard to recognize people when you meet them in Video Village, though, because it's like this dark hole. That's funny. <laughs> it's very dark, ominous kind of a environment, and so I was. That's sort of all I could think about was that time down there when I when everything was happening around um, Bob Odenkirk and what happened with him, and so I was sort of imagining, you know, you guys down there. Um, were you were you there when when he 
collapsed on set over the summer? Yeah, but I'm not going to really speak to any of the details of that until Bob gives the narrative yeah. he wants to give. No, I was just, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to, you know, say that I was thinking about you guys when that happened because. Oh, thank you. Um, it was just this. He's doing of, great. Yeah, it was this kind of terrifying experience of not knowing what was going on, and there was like this Absolutely. whole day on Twitter when everyone was talking about it, and I know I saw you <laughs> tweeting about it too when we finally got, you know, some good news. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I was just relieved that that you know to hear that he's back on set and that you guys are back on track oh. for for season six of Better Call Saul because it's I'm such a big fan of the show and um, was just so relieved. Thank and you. Everything. Oh, thank you. Um, so I know we we want to get to uh, Harper House, um, but just uh, one thing, just on the the Bob thing. I'm just I'm curious, you know. Uh-huh. Thinking about comedy, because this is a comedy podcast and, you know, you've worked in comedy, but now you're sort of better known for drama. What what do you feel like you learned, you know, working with with Bob Odenkirk as a comedian, but on this dramatic project that maybe you've, you know, brought into some other things that you've done uh, since? Bob approaches his work, as do I, the same, whether it's comedic or dramatic. It's the same. It's the same breakdown of a scene. It's the same breakdown of a script. Most of the comedy that comedies that I've been in, um, there is a hint of a darker thread there. And then most of the dark stuff you're doing, there's definitely comedy in Better Call Saul. It's it's <laughs> very dark at times, but I also think they take big swings and can switch tone and switch genre within, within a scene, um, which is really fun and um, a cool kind of challenge to an actor. Um, the approach to the script is about the same, not even about, it is, it is the same. You're still breaking down the objectives, the character's actions, their, you know, their wants, their tactics to get those things, their obstacles. Other than that, yes, you do have to understand the tone of the piece you're in, just like you wouldn't perform a farce the same way you would perform that same comedy uh, as a single camera. And it's not, it's not a qualitative thing. It's not a better or worse thing. It's just understanding the tone of the piece you're in, which is a, it's a slippery thing. And our show is, it vacillates <laughs> a lot in, in between in tones. And so I don't know. It's possible that people that have done a lot of comedy are always attuned to not forcing something to be comedic, but hearing that even in a, when Bob and I run lines or Patrick and I, Michael McKean, uh, most of our cast actually has done comedy and has an ear for it and a little bit of an antenna for it to know like, Oh, that moment right there is actually quite funny because of the circumstances or um, that turn of phrase uh, when there's a pause after it, it just makes your head cock and you smirk a little bit. So there's things that are born out of the fact that I think that we, most of us have an ear for it. Yeah. And then the, this animated show that you're doing now, the Harper house uh, is sort of a whole other side of that. And I'm sure take some other skills to, to master, you know, doing just when you only have your voice to work with, um, yeah. and not, you know, your face. And it's also funny thinking about that versus Kim Wexler, who kind of doesn't talk as much and you, you communicate <laughs> so much through your face on Better Call yes. Saul. And now you're only using your voice in this show. Um, was this something that you, that came up because you had a, a longer than expected hiatus on, on Better Call Saul? Cause I know it got delayed, um, with the, the pandemic right. and is that, sort of what, exactly. what allowed you to do something like Harper House? It was one of the um, few gifts, if you can call it that, um, <laughs> out of the pandemic was having um, availability. And I've been doing more voiceover work in the last uh, 
five to 10 years, just, just starting to get into the swing of doing more and more of it. Um, mostly animation, which I love doing. And, um, and then this came up and I was in love with the character and in love with the script and had these really great talks with Brad, even though he's basing this, uh, not even basing it, but, um, drawing from, Arkansas and small town experiences there that he grew up with. It's not un- Debbie is not unlike characters that I knew in Virginia growing up there. And I mean, small towns have a <laughs> have a similarity wherever wherever you're plopped down in one any state. And um, I just really liked her, and I liked the idea that he was going to push this push this character and push push the envelope as far as like this this the sincerity in it of the heart. The the true like family bonding in it to me paired with some outlandish squeamish um, bodily <laughs> fluid humor and all of it like I I kind of loved that back and forth and um, and and like Better Call Saul and there aren't a lot of similarities you're right between the two <laughs> shows um, <laughs> um, he's not Brad is not afraid to switch tone in a in a scene um, and in an episode and I thought that was so much fun. Yes, it was challenging to go, all right, both comedic and dramatic work, um, as I've been working more and more in voiceover, um, just trying to learn how to, I do a lot of my humor when I'm doing comedy, they call it off the line or on the line, and I'll do off the line. So it's, there's the, there's the line that may be the joke, and you have to do a lift or a land with that. And that's fun and playing that rhythm with a scene partner. And then there's the off the line humor, which in the most broadest sense is like, you say a line, you turn around, you step, you step on the rake and it hits you in the head. That's <laughs> the, that's the laugh that's after the line. You can also do laughs that are before the line. And, um, B Arthur was brilliant at it, but it could also just be like a facial expression, right? I was going to say B Arthur is the genius that does not need the rake, just her face. <laughs> I think three characters in my lifetime have been based on B Arthur, just in a different body or different age. <laughs> but, um, Seems like an interesting challenge. Yeah, it is. Yup, yup, yup. I'm not a failure. In fact, I'm about to turn this unexpected change into my advantage. You see? Yes. a girl. Okay, now, babe, the only thing I'm a smidge, I mean, just the smidgiest smidgen worried about is your presentation style. What? Come on, Freddie. I'm awesome, you just said so yourself. We're all good. Now get to it! Uh, woo! Hey! Mm. All right, girl. Time to blow everyone's mind and save the day. And it also just seems like it must have been a fun escape from some of the darker stuff that you've had to do, you know, on Better Call Saul, where you, you know, are now getting to do something that's, that is, even if there's a heart to it, it's more purely silly and fun and all that. She, yeah, she's she's almost exactly the opposite of Kim Wesley. <laughs> <laughs> how, how so? And, uh, well, Debbie, everything is on her sleeve. It's not just her heart on her sleeve. It's like everything. There is no, there is no front. There is no mask. And Kim is virtually the opposite. Um, in, uh, inscrutable to the nth degree. Um, and, I mean, Debbie would lose at poker to Kim in a heartbeat. <laughs> like, she's got... <laughs> a hundred tells. Um, and, uh, but they both have this incredible strength to be themselves in a room and to take up space and let other people 
deal with it. And that's something that I love about both of them. And it has nothing to do about with any kind of like, oh, strong female character, meaning like a bull in every room or aggressive in every room. It's just about this idea of ta- taking taking up space. And I feel that when I'm playing either of these characters. Mm. Uh, and Debbie's is about, you know, let it all hang out. And um, people just have to deal with it and take her, take her as she is. And with Kim, uh, she does not care to fill silences, something that I am, I aspire to, but I'm not there yet. Like she just... <laughs> Doesn't care. Everybody can just squirm until yeah, they hang themselves. Wait. But I'll just <laughs> Kim is more of an observer and lying in wait to make her move. Debbie is like, I'm making all the moves. I'm gonna just move constantly <laughs> and make a move, make another move, and eventually one of these moves will work. <laughs> Does she feel closer to you in that sense? Um, I have a little bit of both of the, these characters in me. Um, Debbie, I I, te- I am definitely more. Um, physically gestural and kind of, uh, awkward. I don't think Debbie thinks she's awkward. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm aware of my awkwardness, but, um, that sense of not entirely constantly, not entirely knowing the the protocol or the rules of uh, the situation or the room or the company you're in is a feeling that deeply resonates with me. (laughs) Um, It's just that Debbie drives away going, you know, fuck it. I guess I didn't handle that well. They can deal with it versus I drive away like thinking like, Oh my God, I'm such a piece of shit. I can't believe I didn't (laughs) say the right thing here or do the right thing there. Or, um, I thought when they said it was a dance party, everyone was going to actually dance. You know, it's I'm constantly <laughs> misunderstanding what the invite was. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you got to where you are now. Um, and I think that people who know you from just know you from Better Call Saul probably don't realize that you really started in some ways in the sitcom world, in the comedy world on TV, you know, although you were doing theater as well, even before that. Um, so how did it happen that you kind of ended up in that comedy world? Is that something that you were really going for? Or it just sort of worked out that way? Or, or what's what's the story there? started auditioning for um, pilots back, back when there was an actual pilot season. Yeah. Now it's like, now it's a now year it's a free round. Like, Right. You never, which is kind of good because it used to be like pilot season. What was it? I think it was like January, February. There still is a little bit of one, but for any of the listeners that don't know, it's like, it's, it's like the giant, it's like the draft for, but it's for every (laughs) sport and every team. And, you know, it was not as many cable channels and auctions then. So you kind of were all vying for this one pool of stuff that was going to cast now and then go into production and then possibly be greenlit to be a series. And if you didn't get cast during that time, you knew it was going to be pretty slim pickings for the rest of the year. So it was kind of horrible. Um, but <laughs> now now with um, streaming and cable and all this other stuff, stuff is cast kind of year round. But at the time, a lot of people, if you were on the East Coast, you'd fly to LA for pilot season. And I was just way too thin skinned for that. Just not having any of that. A lot of rejection. I was just like, do they need another blonde white 20 something to get off the bus and go like, just in case you needed another one. So I ended up getting a sitcom from one of those taped things that was called I'm with her. And it was for ABC, Chris Henchy and Marco Panette loosely based on Chris Henchy's real life with Brooke Shields and Terry Polo, Danny Condon, David Sutcliffe. And I was playing the wisecracking little sister and it was really um, kind of a, the one in a million shot they had, I had never even come out to LA and I came out for the screen test and there was just 
people that people that the network wanted or people that they already knew or bigger names and this kind of stuff. And um, I just loved the character and did my best and thought like, well, at least I, I just want some LA casting people to maybe see me and see that I have something to contribute. And then I, I got cast and they moved me out and the show was greenlit. And I, and then, and then after that, we went for a year, which is seems short then, but now you're like, Oh, you did 24 episodes. Yes. That's an insane <laughs> breadth of work. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think like, by the way, I think we had like an, like 11 million viewers or something like that at the time oh that we God. were considered not, not a big enough hit. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so different right now. Anyway. Um, so I could be wrong about those numbers, but I just remember that something later, that, something being, that would be a hit now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That would be a great thing now. But, um, I, you can only be so lucky as to be, um, pigeonholed, uh, when you first start doing on camera work. So, there was nothing to bitch about, but I was getting called mostly for sitcoms because it's just like, oh, it's a new sitcom actress. She's a sitcom actress. Um, there is a totally unfair stigma about sitcom acting, in quotation marks, uh, because it's so funny. People love to say multicams are broad and not as realistic, but then you ask them their favorite comedies of all time, and they're all sitcoms. It's all like Cheers and Seinfeld, Nash and um, Mary Tyler Moore Show. Um, yeah, I mean they're all, all sort stuff. of the the classics, but I think it has a it doesn't have as good of a reputation now. Maybe just because single camera comedies became so popular in the last ten years or so. Yeah, and it's like the dumbing down of the material that may or may not have happened in some people's points of view. That isn't because of the medium. That's because of what, where the networks decided to go with lowest common denominator. Um, what's the broadest appeal comedy? At any rate, I started just doing sitcoms, and I did um, I did more work that didn't air than I did that did air. I saw some of that in the in you know researching you that there's a lot of pilots that you shot that didn't that never went anywhere. Um, I know the one. Uh, that you did with Will Arnett sounded like it was uh, very Eva interesting. Adams. Yeah. Oh, what I was the, uh, what's one. the story behind that one? That was an Argentinian um, show that they were doing the American sort of takeoff from it um, with Kevin Falls, whom I adore and, um, and Mark Waters directing. Um, but it was basically uh, like a magical realism single camp. So Will Arnett is a sports agent. That's a womanizing ass and he sleeps with this he has a one night stand with a woman at a bar this is all like the first 20 minutes of the pilot <laughs> 10 minutes probably um it, yeah the whole thing was, was a one minutes. hour oh really I, no i think it was a one hour was it that's so funny that i can't remember it feels like it was one hour and it was <laughs> single cam but um uh she puts a hex on him she's actually a witch and he, cause he's constantly saying how easy it is to be a woman and all of this stuff. And, um, the next morning he wakes up in my body. And so then from then on out, it's just me, but Will has commentary going on in my head the whole time. Um, and that was so much fun with Kat Foster playing my best friend. We had a blast. Probably you had to use your face a lot in that one too. Like without, if there, it's his uh, voiceover going, right? It was, a, yes. And sometimes Will's narration was written beforehand. And I knew like, like the first time she tries to go to the office and is trying to um, look normal, but she doesn't know how to walk and, and she's flirting still with women and being like, Oh wait, that's okay. So, all right, I'm in a different package. Sometimes I knew the narration that was going on and I would physically respond to that or just aid and abet that as a comedic um, thing. And other times Will was doing commentary by watching what I had done in a scene and adding it. And, 
And that was a lot of fun. I wasn't in the same room with him a lot, unfortunately, because I think he's so incredibly talented and, and loved watching later what he had done with some of the stuff. But, um, but that was, that was a lot of fun because it, I, I, that was a heartbreaker that it did not go. And I think it would go now. I think it was so, um, risky. I don't think the network could figure out what do we, cause Kevin was interested in, sure. We're going to ask the, well, sure. We're going to do the jokes about like, I don't, do you ladies wear songs and what do you do with it? I don't get it. You know, sure. We're going to do that stuff. And I was, and it was a blast to do physical comedy like that. Um, but he wanted to then ask these other questions of, okay, well, who, who, this is your lead character. Who are the romantic interests going to be? Is she going to be with women because she's still Will Arnett inside? Or is she going to be with men because she's me on the outside? Is she going to not identify with either? Is it And he wanted to like investigate these things. Yeah. And, and the network was and, like, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think they didn't know. I mean, I was not privy to the actual conversations, but I, I think that it was hard for them to figure out because I've seen the pilot and it is, even if I wasn't in it, I would completely watch that show. It was funny and weird and, um, and had some really interesting stuff with, uh, his, his best friend Kat, that Cat Foster played is a female who's actually in love with him. And she's the only person that knows it's him inside of my body. Everyone else doesn't playing with flirting, playing with the idea of what is a, how, how is, how is a woman allowed to be, um, successful in business? Um, what, like the column for what ambition looks like on women that's, that we find palatable is so much shorter, if not non-existent, as opposed to the column for like men's characteristics. None of these things I'm saying are profound, but at the time investigating those in these really funny, dark ways was, was really interesting. And then I know the one with the the Christopher Guest one must have been the the one of the biggest uh heartbreaks too, heartbreak. right? Yeah, yeah. That was that was the first attempt at I'm going to get some of the titles wrong, at doing an American version of the British series In the Loop, which had a series and a movie, I think. Trying to remember, um, and, and, and the so, thick of it too, right? That was so. Ours was no. Ours was called the thick oh, of okay. it. Okay, and we did, and and uh, Christopher Guest was directing. Mitchell Hurwitz just coming off Arrested Development was writing. Like I was pinching myself the whole time, and then it was. Um, that's the first time I met and worked with Michael McKean. Um, we were sort of we were sort of a, a duo together in it, um, and uh, Michael Higgins was like a small town. Was he a mayor? I think he's a mayor. And um, Alex Borstein was in it. And oh my gosh, who else? We had so much fun. Uh, that later, it didn't go. And it later, the, that continually morphed until it became the um, brilliant uh, Veep. Not specifically from yeah, those people. that's what I was but wondering, the connection. Yeah. Because then you ended up on Veep in the final I season. Was that sort of, was that connected to your experience on that earlier pilot, do you think, that you ended up on Veep? I met David Mandel at a fundraiser and was talking to him and Sarah Silverman, whom I had done, I had just done another fundraiser with. And she's so wonderful. And um, when I'm uncomfortable at, at those Hollywood parties, she's someone that if I don't know her that well, and she probably doesn't have um, these experiences. <laughs> they don't have as much weight to her maybe as they do to me, but I, 
I, I am always struck that if I wind up in a room with her and there's a lot of big celebrities around, um, she can have a real conversation. It does not feel like she's looking over your shoulder. She is genuinely present and genuinely funny, funny and, um, and very sort of, um, warm. And also, uh, she likes women, not, not, I'm not talking about romantically. I'm talking about the vibe you can get from, I, I'm a gal gal. Like I don't want women around me to be uncomfortable or, or feel competitive. Um, and she, she exudes the same kind of energy and that's really kind of lovely. So I was just goofing off laughing with her about something. And David Mendel had joined the conversation. I knew who he was and, and I was a huge fan of, um, deep as well as Seinfeld. <laughs> and, um, and, um, I think he had seen better call Saul cause he knows Bob Odenkirk. And, um, I think he had mentioned that he did like my work on, on Saul and stuff, but then later circled back and asked me if I was interested in doing Veep. And when I got to set, he said that like he hadn't seen any of my sitcom. He actually didn't know that I was funny except <laughs> for that casual conversation at a that's party so one funny. night, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And I was like, that's so weird to me because for years I, I had to, I had to fight to get dramatic auditions because everyone's like, she only does comedy. And then, now um, I am with great gratitude, mostly well known for for Better Call Saul. But it's like I have to tell people that I can do comedy now, which is pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I got to set, and he was like, "Wow, this is kind of full circle for you, like because you did you did the thick of it." I go, "Yeah, it's kind of weird, but all things happen for a reason." Because obviously, Veep meant was meant to be. <laughs> well, yeah. you get to have a really nice arc on that show, and it's the sort of. Uh... Me too inspired uh character that you're that you're doing. And then there's this very memorable scene where um Julia, Julia Louis Dreyfus sort of confronts you in a way um about the oh, situation. God. Um so I'm just I'm curious what filming that scene with her was like. First of all, watching Julia Louis Dreyfus uh or anyone in that whole cast um work is like a master class in comedy. It was so much fun. Even some of the earlier episodes of the final season where I'm there, but I'm kind of just lurking um, because I'm being seen as the other Amy. <laughs> um, um, they, it was, it was such a delight to watch uh, her work. All of them. I actually, all of them. Absolutely. They, um, they have these scripts and they're coming fast and furious and they have all these tremendous writers. And so you're getting like super fast, lightning fast, um, jokes and wit and humor. That's also hyper intelligent, um, and witty repartee zinging back and forth. And in that moment, they, um, they're, you're also able to pitch or slightly ad lib and kind of like tweak things just a little bit going this way or that way. And, and, you know, like watching Julia do the monologue that you're talking about, not to mention Tony Hale. I, it was very hard to keep a straight face during that <laughs> insulting monologue. And the whole time she was doing, they would slightly tweak, like what kind of tattoo should be on the woman's back. And like, maybe if we move the word jizz up <laughs> one phrase, like it was, it's that kind of ear for it where it's, it's very symphonic and she can hear which, which instrument should come forward and which should recede, you know, and then Tony, same thing. He's in the same symphony and is just like, you know, he would just say like preach in the middle yeah. of it. And I <laughs> thought I was going to, lose it. I can't say I blame you. 
I mean, that nutmeg state indefinable really turns my hydrant on. The only difference is that I was the most exciting conquest of his life, and you just had the motel room closest to the ice machine. I don't know what you're talking about, because oh, really? I am the senator's chief of staff. Yeah, 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 for now. But trust me, he will never see you as anything other than the TGI Friday's hostess on Proactive, who lets him bend you over his desk while you close your eyes to avoid coming face to face with that frame photo of his family's trip to Aspen while he drowns your little mermaid back tat in a pool of jizz and admires his own reflection. Jesus. Wow. It's a, it's a joy, but at the same time, they had a, there was this scene at an outdoor fair that had uh, this day player guy had like, I think he had like one line, maybe two lines, and they could have been done just play. He's just telling her about this um, pumpkin content. I don't know. It was something at the fair. I can't remember. And I'm standing away in the background, but um, the guy, you could completely just do the line as a throwaway and it doesn't matter and we'll move on. And then all of your main cast characters are hysterically funny. Julia, I was standing close enough to hear her. She whispered to this guy. Um, she was like, you don't have to listen. You know, you don't have to <laughs> listen to this at all. And, and she was doing it very qu- quietly. Um, I just happened to be standing right next to him at the time. And um, she told him just this, like, if, I forget what it was. I don't know if it was, if you did the first half sincere and then left a breath, it was something very specific that made this one line very funny. And, um, and she was just sort of whispering it to the guy and then walking away and then he did it and he was, and he was very funny and he got a huge laugh. And, um, I just thought like, isn't that, isn't that lovely that she, well, first of all, she's, uh, uh, as Vince Gilligan says all the time, confident enough to collaborate. Like she doesn't, she doesn't need to be the only person funny in the room. Yeah, Certainly so not. Generous. And she, it, it's just, yeah, I just thought it was like, isn't that cool? Like letting that guy shine for the day. Um, and everybody on the show was like that. Everybody was so generous, just as happy for you to get the laugh as them. Just as happy to set you up, uh, for a laugh. Um, so embracing, um, of me cause I didn't know anybody. And this is their, you know, their final season. I was like, Oh my God, I felt a little bit like I, want to make make a wish foundation kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) coming up more better call Saul talk with ray seahorn including how she landed the role despite a lack of tv drama experience and what it was like filming that scene in the apartment with lalo ryan reynolds here from mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. 
In addition to Ray Seahorn, we have talked to a few of the comedians who have populated the Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul universe over the years, including Bill Burr and Roy Wood Jr. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Ray Seahorn. So it was interesting what you were saying about that you were for, forever known as a sitcom actor, felt you know a little bit pigeonholed for better or worse, and then had to kind of fight to get into this dramatic role in Better Call Saul. So how did that work? How were you able to convince the the folks at Better Call Saul that you were uh, that you could do this role that really has become quite a a dramatic and intense uh, character over these past several years? Well, much like all of the comedies I did that never aired that you'll never see, um, <laughs> Sharon Bialy and Sherry Thomas, who also cast Breaking Bad and, and, and now Russell Scott as well, um, they're brilliant casting directors. And they are one of the few, not the only, but one of the few um, casting directors that do not see those lines of comedy actors are that and drawn actors are that. Um, and my comparison to uh, comedies that I've done that you'll never see, Sharon Bialy, Sherry Thomas, and Russell Scott saw a body of work of mine in the dramatic world that never saw the light of day, never saw a light outside of the casting office because they called me in for dramas probably over 10 years. And I never got any of them. And no one would know uh, on the West Coast that I was capable of um, everything from super dark. I did monologues of people that were uh, a, a woman that was troubled with um, a lot of mental illness and mood disorder stuff, but was a detective. And I, I can't even think of all the things, but also some very, very subtle work, characters that were way outside of what people think of me for, not just because they were dramatic, but because of their um, range. And she would call me in for them. And she thought that I did a great job, like would sincerely think that I was great and would always tell me like, it's, you know, it's not, it's not you. It's, it's them. It's what, uh, or what they need or what the producers are demanding or the financers are demanding or whatever. Um, and, and would encourage me to not, uh, not change my attack on roles, which was sometimes a little bit unconventional in the world of likability, I'll say. Um, <laughs> That's a that's a big word in uh in TV and in you know in... it's it's overused and misused and um, so you weren't in, of... were you saying you weren't you were actively not trying to be likable in a sense I wasn't trying to be unlikable okay. I never was trying for that but but you also I, weren't trying to be likable I wasn't trying to make some of the choices that I thought were the most interesting more palatable just for the sake of making them more palatable. I wasn't trying to soften a character's anger constantly. I wasn't trying. I mean, sometimes I did, believe me. The years when like, you're like, oh, I'm not working at all. Maybe I better (laughs) soften a little bit. Change Um, my approach. (laughs) Um, I'm making it sound more dramatic than it was. I was not going in there and playing everybody like evil and aggressive and ugly and in your face. It wasn't. It wasn't that. It was just, um, and it wasn't just palatability. There were other things too. I often found some darker drama stuff like quite funny in areas. And I was trained, and it's what I'm doing now on Saul, like, like go ahead and go for that. It's fine for a character to suddenly like 
have a very odd take on something or whatever. Sharon enjoyed it. She, both Sharon's, <laughs> they thought that I, they liked something about what I was doing and they were very encouraging. And they, and so by the time Better Call Saul was coming up and they had to cast this role that there was some idea of what the character was going to be, but not an entirely fleshed out idea of where they planned on going with her or if they planned on taking her there. I read for Vincent Peter as many other people did, but I also think that Sharon was able to present me to them saying, because they had not seen any of my sitcom, Vincent Peter. Um, I don't know if it would have been better or worse if they had. I have no, I have no idea. But I do know that Sharon was able to talk about me as an actor, and I'm sure I'm not the only one because I did screen testing with some other brilliant actresses in the room. Um, and but Sharon is able to speak to a body of work that no one else has seen, which I think was. Uh, very helpful in my case, because if they were looking for certain characteristics or abilities to possibly go in this direction or that direction with the character, she could talk to them about work she'd seen me do in that one little casting office. So that was, I think that was um, pivotal. So now that we're heading into the final season of Better Call Saul, I think there's just so much anticipation for it in part because it's been delayed and it's just like, there's so much, some buildup. I was rewatching the last couple episodes of the previous season, which are just so intense and, and you're so incredible in them. Thank you. I want to briefly touch on that scene where Lalo comes to the apartment, just because I think it's really a high point of the show. Um, you know, I, I was reading that you used to, you know, flip through scripts to see if you made it through alive that week. Um, <laughs> yes. so, so I'm curious when you, <laughs> when you got to that scene in, in the show, um, you know, what did you think when you, when you first read it? I knew that the producers would call me directly if I, it's not like page by page. Yeah, I'm not you sure if I'm find dead out. on the next one. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to find out by somebody dropping a script off on my stoop. Um, they would not do that to me, <laughs> but but I was, my, my, my first reaction, all of the scripts read like page turners. They are a joy to read. They are as exciting to read as they are to watch, which seems almost impossible, but it's, but it's true. They are incredibly, beautifully dense, complex written scripts. Um, and, uh, so there's always a part of me that's just reading it as a fan for a moment. Um, but as soon, and I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God. My, you know, blood pressure is rising. Um, and then I have to say my very next thought was, holy shit, I don't know if I can pull this off. <laughs> I was like, I don't Which happens a lot in the show where, um, and on all the best shows that I, I, I've, I've been on, it's a great feeling to feel scared of the material, to feel challenged by the material. And then also to tell yourself like, wow, they actually think I can handle it. Um, and not just handle it, but contribute that is a compliment that is currently making me sweat. I'm already getting, you can't see it, but I'm sweating profusely. It's hard to actually absorb that sometimes of like, gosh, these guys really think I can play in the sandpit with them. But then you got to get to just doing the work. You can't sit in that feeling long because you got to go, you got to, <laughs> you got to do your work. And um, Tony Dalton is an amazing performer. Bob Odenkirk is one of, you know, one of my all-time favorite scene partners is and always will be. So knowing that I'm going to be in the room with them and that it's Tom Schnauz writing and directing that I have a relationship with, I knew everything's teed up to make this ex as exciting as it is on the page. And then we got to rehearse it, which you don't, we try to rehearse everything here. And if we can't 
actually get stage time and do it with directors and writers because of time or somebody's shooting or whatever, then we find each other and we do it on each other's porches, running it over and over and over, leaving room to surprise yourself with um, the director's notes or the blocking or something that happens on the day and, you know, being open as a performer, but still it's very nerd camp here. We like, (laughs) we talk and talk and talk about the scenes and the layers and the layers and the layers and layers. But that particular scene, because it is so, it's like a one act play. And I know Tom has said in the press that he didn't realize that till he, till we were in there rehearsing it. It's basically a small one act play of, you know, the intruder, the monster at the door. (laughs) And, um, and there's this triangle of, of blocking and power that keeps shifting about who's where. And and then it had to be lined up at the window because Mike's sniper rifle is also trained on, on Lalo, but Kim keeps stepping into fire line and, and, and all of that stuff. And, uh, so we, we did rehearse that, um, with Marshall Adams, the DP, um, it, it was pretty intricate and tricky. Uh, but, getting to do that, I then just felt, I felt excited about shooting it. I thought like, okay, I understand, um, the broad strokes. I understand the shape of this thing. Um, so now when we get there on the day, we'll just kind of, we can play all the nuances, um, there of the slight different, like catching somebody's eye, um, uh, speaking, picking up your cue quickly, as opposed to leaving a pause can dramatically change the, uh, trajectory and the energy and then everything spills off that um and they write a lot of scenes like that i find this show has been the most like theater of any show i've done because you well they hold wides a lot for pivotal moments and so you can use your entire body which is something that you normally can only do on stage because a lot of shows are obsessed with the close-up um and um it's nice getting to do that to act with your whole body um and also they will allow eight page talking scenes like that, like that scene. I mean, there, there, yes, there's a gun present, but there's no explosive. There's no fight. There's no physical fight. There's no car crash, (laughs) but it is a terrifying scene. What kind of operation are you running anyway? Tell me, cause I think I know why you sent him to do this job. It's obvious. You have no one else you can trust. Right? So you sent some lawyer through the desert with yours, with your seven million bucks? That, I, no offense, but you need to get your house in order. Oh, really? Yeah, really. If you don't trust your men with your money, you have bigger problems than if you trust Saul Goodman. And the subtext going on of like, who knows what? Like, I don't actually know Jimmy's whole lie. He still hasn't told me. But I'm sensing that he's keeping something, something he's choosing not to tell is worth the, the danger of not saying it. Like, uh, so what, what is this? And then she uh, steps in for me in a way that is um, very much Kim. And you see it in other things. You see it uh, in the scene where they almost break up. And then instead she says, maybe we get married. I don't think Kim, Jimmy actually deals head on with emotions much better than Kim. I think in some ways these male female stereotypes are switched with those two. She doesn't want to talk it out. She's like, let's not talk about our feelings. Let's um, just give me a project, make everything pragmatic so I can solve this. And so in that moment when it it's messy, she can't overpower him. She can't physically do anything. Um, so she, or, this switch goes off where it's like, I, I, I have to, I have to handle this like a court case. I, I've got to, 
I've got to defend my clients and um, <laughs> raise some decent points. And, you know, and I don't think Lalo leaves because I'm so intimidating. I think, I think she makes some points that are true of his situation. But I also think like, and Tony was so great at this. There's a lot of calculating going on on his part of how can I, how can I use these two people? Um, maybe there's something better to do with them than shoot them. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, uh, you know, Kim and Jimmy don't know that he survived the, <laughs> the end of the show. They think he's dead, but, um, and that they would not be happy to find out that he survived. But I, I would imagine that you were maybe happy that, uh, Tony Dalton is around uh, for, for the Thrill. next season. Thrill. Thrill. Um, the other the other moment that got a lot of uh, attention is just the very end of the season five, the the finger guns uh, gesture yeah. that, that Kim uh, makes. Um, what was your what was your interpretation of that? Because that's just gotten a lot of uh, people, you know, wondering what she was thinking was a, when she when she that did was that. a really hard scene. And Peter Gold wrote it and directed it. And um, I loved how hard that scene was. It is extremely amorphous. It is extremely hard to pin down. Um, and we knew that we had to find the balance. As an actor, I need to know what I'm playing in those moments when she's playing that game back and forth about what if to do to things to do to Howard and then starts getting meaner and meaner and and more vicious about the things she wants to do and then pulls it back and says, just kidding. And then maybe not. And then he's like, well, you wouldn't be able to do that. And she's like, wouldn't I all like cascading into these finger guns. And that's the second half of the scene. There's the whole third. I think it's, I forget exactly how it's broken up, but from the time they get to the motel room, it also starts with all of this stuff where it seems as though Jimmy is saying, I'm bad for you. And therefore I'm going to leave. I let we should break up. We should end this. And Kim doesn't want that. And that starts to spin this, this game and this tale. Um, and Peter and I talked about it and we all knew, like I said, as an actor, I, I need to know what Kim means by it. But in this situation, the audience is, um, is Jimmy's point of view, which is that of not being able to discern whether she's being serious or not. So how do you play those intentions purposely making it not discernible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like normally, like you need to be clear about your choices of this is what she, this is the intention behind the line. And, and, and but she also shouldn't look like she's purposely trying to confuse him. It needs, it, it was a, it was a very, <laughs> yeah, uh, very complex. <laughs> it was a very tiny needle to thread. Um, and so we did a lot of, we did a lot of, a lot of, lot of variations so <laughs> many takes of finger guns so many takes there's a of there's the, a finger gun the uh, montage I, out there somewhere oh for sure we're talking about a career setback a career setback for one lawyer yeah i know you get up a lot of people i i get it but <laughs> kim doing this it's not you, okay? You would not be okay with it. Not in the cold light of day. Wouldn't I? But it was fun because it's also like Kim is, she's also just come off the scene with Howard, uh, who's told her like, you know, I, I just want to let you know that Jimmy's bad for you. And like, everyone's always telling her, and he doesn't think she should quit Schweikart. And it's like, everybody's constantly having ideas of um, how 
what Kim should be and what's good for her and what's not good for her. And then here's the man that I love also telling me, like, I think I'm bad for you. Like, she's not a grown adult making her own choices, which is one of the constant themes that I have loved that they have given my character and all the characters really is just like, are you a series of choices that are um, manufactured by who you are just innately? Or are you a series of reactions to what has happened to you in life and, and your relationships? Or are they converged and one or the other is kind of, is constantly fighting for, um, to be the primary (laughs) urge. I don't know, but I needed to take in that gamesmanship as well. I think there's a little bit of her saying, like, you think, you know, me, everyone thinks you, everyone thinks they know me. Well, guess what? You don't know about me. Is it true? I don't know. Maybe it is true. Maybe you're going to find out. But that kind of stuff. um, Did you relate to that that at all um, in your own life and career? People telling you what you can be and what you should be and, and all that? Maybe. I hadn't thought about it. That's a good question. Probably. I, uh, yeah, probably. I don't fit well into the molds that um, this business can sometimes want. And luckily that has allowed me to work with some of my favorite people in the business because that's exactly why they liked me. And I'm so thankful to, because uh, some people don't get that, um, that reminder that uh, you you just being you in the way you attack your work um, is good and uh, and appreciated, and so I'm I'm in, I'm incredibly grateful that um, that I have that I have people that I've ha- that I've had a career that that encourages me. It's nice. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I know you're kind of in the middle of this now, this filming this last season, but how are you feeling now, knowing that it is almost going to be over and and that you're going to kind of have to move on from from this character and this show. I mean, it must be just so intense because you've been doing it for so long now. It is. And um, it's funny, like, we have to be careful about even me saying that I'm in New Mexico because people don't know, does, does Kim survive or what happens to Kim? And by the way, I don't know. And just so you know, we have reshoots and we took the little pause with uh, Bob's heart attack and this, that, and the other. So even me being here and now doesn't actually tell you much about yeah. what happens to me or how many episodes <laughs> I'm in. Right, right, right. Because they jump back and forth in time. They do it all the time. But that being said, I don't actually know what happens to my character yet. But I'm in, <laughs> I am bereft that the, that the series is ending <laughs> in, in all ways. You know, it's just one of my, it's one of my favorite characters that I've ever played. Probably will be. Um, you know, uh, it's just, incredibly complex plus the gift of playing a character for six seasons over the course of seven plus years that that is allowed to grow and change and and constantly deepen in complexity um that's that's a gift unto itself it's just like to grow and challenge yourself as an actor and um and to work with all these people that are just top 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 of their game there's something to learn every day there is a there are multiple opportunities to become better at your job from everything from the props department to the writing, to your scene partner, um, your director, uh, lighting designers, DP, like sound. Um, it's just a it's masterclass every day, every day. And you can choose to show up and learn something <laughs> or you can uh, ruin your life. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It will be very, very, very hard to let go of. Plus I now, deeply love the character of Kim Wexler. I just love her. If even if I hadn't played her, I'm so I'm so happy that that character exists on television. <laughs> yeah, I think I know you you can't say anything about her fate, but I I I'm sure you know how concerned the 
fans of the show <laughs> and the world are for her and you know just waiting anxiously to find out what happens to her i want to end with this the uh this is a podcast that's primarily about comedy even though we've talked a lot about a lot of things but i want to give you a chance to shout out something that's really made you laugh recently um is there a piece of comedy a tv show a comedian or or anything that has really made you laugh recently that you want to shout out Ten fifteen, and the fact that they did that did, have you seen the animated yes episode? i did i did yeah yeah, I, love that I just show. watched, I've <laughs> seen it. I love it so much. And I watched it twice. Bob told me about it. Um, he loves that show too. Um, we're both kind of just obsessed with it. And uh, <laughs> that animated episode is not only funny, but heartbreaking, which they do in um, all of their episodes, but also the why of why it's animated. Cause I know a lot of people did animated episodes because of the pandemic. I have no idea if that's why this one is animated. I don't actually know the backstory on this one. Yeah. I assume but that the, was the, the case, but yeah, but the why, and you know what I'm talking about, like why it needed to be animated and the, and where it took the, the drama and the comedy by being able to illustrate their faces mm, um, yeah. at a certain point was just, just so incredible and so wonderful. And um, didn't Anna uh, Conkle, I don't know if I'm saying her last name right. Um, I think it's as written and directed by her at the I end. I think so, it? yeah. Jesus Christ. Those gals are geniuses. Yeah, I was, geniuses. So, I was so happy to see that they got the even just the, the nomination at the Emmys for, for Best Comedy, which they hadn't, uh, which was just exciting to see. That's awesome. Um, well, I know uh, Better Call Saul was not eligible at this year's Emmys, but um, I'll be I'll be rooting for the show and uh, for you at at next at the next time around. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. Um, and uh, yeah, good luck uh, shooting the the end of the show. And um, yeah, it's just very exciting for all of us who have been watching this whole time. Thanks. I hope you enjoy Harper House too. Yes, definitely. Really great script. Yeah, we everyone should check it out. All right, thank you so much. All right, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Ray Seahorn for joining me on this bonus episode of The Last Laugh. The Harper House is currently streaming on Paramount Plus, and the final season of Better Call Saul is expected to premiere on AMC sometime next year. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com